Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Howard David Live. Welcome in a very familiar face, Bob Costas. You know, we go back a long way together, Bob. We applied for the same job, Mm -hmm. the Spirits of St. Louis. Uh, A guy named Rudy Martsky, who you knew, asked me to send a tape in, and I did. And then he told me what the money was. And I said, well, I'm already making more than that now. So you had the vision. I did not. You Mm -hmm. saw the bigger picture. Congratulations to you. Maybe I would have been Bob Costas by now. Who knows? Well, <laughs> for better or for worse, uh, I was 22 years old, uh, and the starting salary at KMOX, which included duties besides calling the Spirits games. So the annual salary, not just the basketball season salary, in 1974-75 was $11,000. And if I had had eleven grand, I would have paid them for the job. <laughs> so I might not be the smartest guy in the world, but I was smart enough to know this could be a good place to, in, to, in effect, start your career, and it worked out okay. Yeah, well, we work with one of the best radio stations in the country, mm-hmm. KMOX, which had a lot of stars like Jack Buck and so on. Uh, let me ask you about uh, the, uh, the, the whole Bob Costas love for baseball. You have an enormous yep. love for the game. I did, too, when I was a kid, uh, and I had an enormous baseball card collection. When I went into the United States Air Force, and came home. I asked my mother, I said, where's my card collection? She said, I threw them out. I said, you, you what? She said, yeah. I threw them out? I said, oh my God, I don't know what it was worth, but I, it had to be worth something. Well, in retrospect, it certainly was worth something, but kids of our generation didn't buy baseball cards, five for a nickel plus the waxy piece of gum uh, and a tops pack. We bought it for sentimental reasons or because we were just attached to baseball. We never thought of it as an investment. You know, you'd flip them, you'd trade them, you'd organize them in a shoebox by position, by league, by whatever category you wanted. And you might trade a Hector Lopez. You'd never trade a Willie Mays. You might take Jerry Lumpy and put him on the spokes of your bike to make that clipping sound while you pedaled around the neighborhood. That was the hierarchy. We weren't thinking of it as an investment, but your tale of woe is shared, I'm thinking, by thousands and thousands of baby boomer kids. They go off, in your case, to the Air Force, in my case, to college. And the mom says, quite logically, he hasn't bought baseball cards since he was 13 years old. Let's get rid of this. And in fact, that's what happened. Uh, we, uh, when I went into the United States Air Force, uh, I had no direction in my life. Uh, and my parents were shocked that I elected to volunteer to go. This was during Vietnam. Uh, mm-hmm. why not get uh, drafted by the army? Because I, I didn't want to go to Vietnam. Mm-hmm. So I, I wanted, I thought I could get a career in the Air Force, and that's what worked out for me. I uh, went to broadcasting school in the Air Force, um, and, and it worked out to where I got a chance to do a lot of things. And then after I got out, I'm uh, looking for a job, and I, uh, I get offered a job 
by a music station in on Long Island. And I'm saying to myself, this isn't what I want to do. Mm -hmm. I see something in Broadcasting Magazine about a job in Princeton, New Jersey, at a local radio station. I, have, I applied for the job, sent them a tape. The president of the station called me, said, why don't you come down here and visit with me? And I wound up taking the job for the enormous sum of $125 a week and the chance to do Princeton basketball and football. Basketball, you'll remember, the great Pete Carrill was the coach there. Yeah. And had a lot of success. Football, you know, obviously football in the Ivy League is not a, really a big deal. But I got a chance. Your love for baseball, I didn't have that same passion. But when I was working at CBS Radio, they had the rights to the baseball game of the week. And uh -huh. I got a chance to do some games. And I got a chance to work with a guy named Lindsey Nelson. Oh, yeah. This, this was, <laughs> I, I didn't, I was so in awe of this guy because he's, first of all, he's a great guy. Aside yes. from the fact he's a great broadcaster. Lovely man. A couple of weeks later, I got a chance to work with Dick Stockton, and we've been friendly ever since. The game of baseball, I don't know, would you say that it's being described to your satisfaction, you aside, what you hear? Is that to your satisfaction, or do you think that that play that the broadcasters are not really doing the preparation they should be doing? Well, I think it varies. Uh, I'm out on the West Coast. I watched the Yankees play the Angels last night. Wayne Randazzo, who used to fill in um, for Gary Cohen on TV and for Howie Rose sometimes on radio when he was with the Mets, is now the television voice of the Angels. Guy still in his 30s, and he really has the right idea about how a broadcast should be done. He's up to date on what's happening. He knows the history of the angels. He doesn't have to look it up. Some of it you can tell just comes to him off the top of his head. And he understands that there's a place for telling stories, even if you have to do it a bit more concisely or pick your spots more carefully now that we have a pitch timer. So I think it varies. Uh, a, a guy like Wayne Randazzo is close to a classic approach. Uh, I don't like, and this is only a matter of taste. It's not an objective right or wrong. I don't like guys who scream. Hmm. Now, Otani hit a big home run late in the game last night. He continues to do incredible Otani things. And so that's a big moment. The crowd erupts. And Wayne was very excited to get over the crowd. But there are guys out there that are screaming on a ground ball through the hole in the fourth inning that makes the score one to nothing. You know, if you have no place to go, if, if that's where you are for that, where do you go in the bottom of the ninth in the World Series on a Grand Slam home run? Where yep. do you go when you have your Bobby Thompson moment? Now, of course, there are those like Vin Scully somehow managed to always convey the excitement and the import of the moment without ever screaming. You listen to Kirk Gibson's home run in 88. You listen to Hank Aaron's 715. You listen to the last inning of Sandy Koufax's perfect game. He's got all the anticipation, all the drama, but he never screams. So that's that's my preference. I feel like, and this isn't true just for baseball, I think overall, maybe you can't do this in every broadcast, but I've said this before in a couple of places. You hope your career, if you're given the right opportunities, is in a broadcast sense, like a good edition of Sports Illustrated. It has some topicality. It has some humor. It has an appreciation of the drama, the theater, the human emotion, the backstories of sports. Uh, it has some elements of journalism and commentary. Now, in a broadcast, you're not going to involve all those. It'd be rare to involve all those in a single broadcast. But over time, you hope 
that when you step away from the canvas, you've hit all of those shadings. Um, some of them are broad strokes and others are, are little accents, but you hope that it's all there. Younger announcers today, many of whom, as I've just said, are very, very good. We're all influenced by the culture in which we grew up. And we're in a shouting culture. We're in a hot take culture. We're in a no misdemeanors, only felonies, only primary colors. Love this guy, hate that guy. You know, uh, so nuance is not exactly having its day for the most part, but I still prefer it. We had a conversation a few years ago doing an interview with you, and you said this virtually the same thing. Uh, I said, what's your, your interpretation of broadcasters? And you said they think that loud is good and loud is just loud. Yeah. <laughs> so, which, which I completely agree personality, with. personality, Howard, is not measured in decibel levels, right. but there are always exceptions that prove the rule. If it comes organically rather than as part of a shtick, Harry Carey, that's who Harry Carey was. You know, now toward the end, the Harry Carey with the Cubs that Will Ferrell parodied. Right. That wasn't the Harry Carey in St. Louis. When Harry Carey was with Jack Buck in St. Louis, that might have been the best duo ever in a radio booth in the history of baseball. Both Hall of Famers. Jack had the dry wit and he could get very excited in a big moment. Think of Ozzie Smith. Go crazy, folks. Go crazy. Or his call on radio, Kirk Gibson's home run. I don't believe what I just saw, but still he doesn't lose the professionalism of it and just lose his mind. Harry Carey was an exceptionally good baseball announcer. He, he had all the I's dotted and all the T's crossed in his prime in St. Louis, but he was also more bombastic because that was his natural personality. Yep. People who just decide they're going to do that because that's their shtick. That's much less effective. No, uh, we're on the same page when it comes to that. Uh, uh, when I was doing Sunday night football with Pat Hayden, uh, Jack mm -hmm. Buck and Hank Stram were the, the uh, long tenured uh, couple on Monday night football. And uh, they decided to make a change at CBS and I got the job, but Pat Hayden couldn't do it uh, because uh, he, was, he was doing it. He had a company in LA and he just couldn't do it. Couldn't devote the time. So they paired Matt Millen with me, Bob, I got to tell you, if I've ever worked with anybody who was more entertaining to work with and a good guy, Matt Millen, to me, he knew he knew the game. He learned from John Madden. He saw 22 players on the field simultaneously, and he could describe it. Uh, and, I, and aside from the fact I enjoyed working with Matt, uh, we had a, a great time. And I mean, the Monday Night Football ba banner was something that just I'll never forget. Well, I think that Matt could loosely be likened to a guy I worked with, mostly in the studio, did a couple of games with him, Paul McGuire. Yeah. Uh, old punter from the Buffalo Bills. Paul would walk into a booth and it would just astonish me. He'd just take the flip card that they pass out to all the members of the press at a football game. He didn't have a spotting chart. He didn't have a spotter. He just held the card in his hand <laughs> and he, had, he didn't bring any notes, but he had some intuitive sense of the game. And he made insightful observations without having a notebook in front of him or anything else. It worked for him, partly because like Millen, in addition to football insight, he had a certain personality. He didn't have to tell you this. He just sensed that this is a guy who'd belly up to the bar. This is a guy who after the game, you'd like to have a beer with. Yep. And that worked. Yeah, it did. Uh, he'd show up to games and I said, what did your wife pack, pack your clothes today? I mean, <laughs> 
I wouldn't say that he was a bon vivant, but I said, Matt, I mean, you're comfortable. He says, hey, I'm here to do a football game. What do I have to get right. all dressed up? But, but I'm going to go back to what you said before. It made a lot of sense talking about loud and broadcasters and so on. Yeah. When you, when you talk about uh, a broadcaster that makes the first inning of the first game sound like the ninth inning of the seventh game, then that's wrong. It you're is making, wrong. Yeah, and you're making the first quarter of a football game sound like the fourth quarter. That doesn't work either. And that's really some in substance of what we're talking about. Yeah, I think there are exceptions. For example, in basketball, sometimes, as you know, you've done a lot of basketball, sometimes in that relatively small space in an arena, this can also be true in hockey, the place is at a fever pitch from the tip-off or the dropping of the puck. And you've got to reflect that to get over the crowd. Sometimes you have that intensity from the crowd and that feeling on the court in an NCAA tournament game or an NBA finals game. Now, again, you don't want to become hysterical. It's your job, especially on a national broadcast where you're not broadcasting for a home audience, you're broadcasting for the entire country, many of whom don't have a specific rooting interest unless they have a bet. They just want to see a good game. You have to reflect what's going on in the arena or in the ballpark. Uh, you need to get to all the particulars. But you, there are times when the crowd will take you to a place where you didn't expect to go and you just sure. go with it. Sure. Uh, you, in 1989, the ALCS, you filled in for Vin Scully, who I yeah. guess had, had some kind of a throat problem. Mm -hmm. uh, and so what are you thinking about before you step into the booth? You're filling in for Vin Scully, yeah. a guy that you idolized, I believe. Yeah, of course. Right? So what was that like? What was that emotion like? Well, here's, what, here's how it happened. Tony Kubek and I were doing the ALCS between the Blue Jays and the A's. And Vin and Joe Garagiola are doing the Cubs and the Giants in the NLCS. The first two games in Oakland, the A's happen to win. We fly to Toronto, and it's an open date while the Cubs and Giants are playing game two of their series. Vin comes down with laryngitis. Mike Weissman, the executive producer and a great baseball guy, calls me and says, get on a plane from Toronto to Chicago. And easy enough, relatively short flight, direct flight. I land about, I don't know, three o'clock in the afternoon and go straight to Wrigley Field. What really helped me was that those were the days of the NBC game of the week. So you did games of virtually every team in the league and certainly every team that was a contender, like the four teams that were in the LCS. So while I hadn't made specific notes for that game, I knew the Giants. I knew the Cubs. So in that sense, I wasn't coming in cold. And I checked the box score, obviously. I mean, you didn't have the internet then, but you pick up the newspaper, you look at the box score, you know what happened uh, the night before, and you carry that into the game. Tom Seaver, uh, I said Vin and Joe, and I was incorrect. That one season before NBC lost baseball in 1989, it was Vin and Tom Seaver. And luckily, Tom and I were pretty well acquainted prior to that. So it was an easy feel in the booth. But even then, as a relatively young guy, I was smart enough to realize you try and copy the master, not only do you not get even halfway to the master, you just become a pale imitation. Yeah. So, you know, Vin, Vin is Vin. He'll be back for game three. There's an off day. He'll be okay when, when they get to Candlestick Park. I'll do it the best I can, the way I've generally done it. And as I remember, it's a long time ago, but as I remember, the broadcast was very well received. So there you go. I was doing a football game in Georgia, the, the Georgia Bulldogs, and I forget who the opponent was. 
I was working for CBS Radio, and they were doing the World Series up the road in Atlanta that same year. Mm-hmm. And so I called my boss and I said, you know, my wife and I are at the game. Can we find, can you get us an uh, entry into the press box? He goes, no problem. I didn't, I forgot. Then Scully is doing the game with Johnny Bench. And I, I walk, Bob, I grew up in Brooklyn. I was the biggest oh, yeah. Brooklyn Dodger fan there ever oh. was on the planet. I walk in, I saw Vin Scully. It was like, a, it was like turning back the page to my childhood. Mm-hmm. This is Vin Scully. My God. And I sat behind, he, they introduced me to him. I said, Vin, big Brooklyn Dodger fan, big fan of yours when you were doing the Dodgers. This is a, this is a big moment for me. So he says, hey, you know, come on in. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about the Dodgers. And, and it was like, it was a big moment to me. Now we put that behind. I'm doing a game in L.A., a Laker game with the Boston Celtics. And I walk into the Laker locker room and I ask the PR guy, can I, is, will Kareem do an interview? He goes, yeah, just go over and talk to him. I walked over to Kareem and I said, I'm Howard David. I'm broadcasting the Celtics games. We're here to do the Lakers and the Celtics. He goes, where are you from? I said, Brooklyn. He said, sit down. <laughs> and you know what we did? We didn't talk basketball. We spent a half an hour doing trivia. He would throw one at me. I would throw one at him. Neither one of us got one wrong. It was incredible. So finally, I said, Kareem, I know you got to go and so on. I said, but I really appreciate your time. He goes, hey, we're talking about the Dodgers, man. I'll talk to you about that anytime you want. It was a big kick. You know, baseball was, is Kareem's favorite sport. Yeah. Jack Robinson, understandably, was his boyhood hero. Uh, Kareem is a fascinating guy, deeply intelligent, not just superficially bright, deeply yep. intelligent, well-read, thoughtful. Um, he belies every stereotype you want to throw out about a jock, uh, in addition to, be one of, to being one of the greatest of all time. And I think it was a reflection, really, of his personality that he didn't want to overpower anybody. Yeah, he was seven foot two, but he valued finesse. A skyhook is elegant. An inside jam is not. I'm not talking about Michael Jordan or Dr. J with an improv in midair. That's a different thing than just dunking the ball underneath the basket. That's a power move. Kareem preferred a more elegant move like the skyhook. And when you look at his free throw percentage even, he shot better than 70% from the free throw line Mm-hmm. which was very unusual for a seven-footer in his era. I uh, ad- admired, not admired, like Kareem, Jackie Robinson was my hero. I wore number 42 in my baseball uniform, number 42 in my basketball uniform. And I'm walking down the street, this is when he was working for Chuck Full of Nuts as mm-hmm. executive vice president. And I'm walking down 43rd Street and Lexington Avenue in Manhattan. And this guy's walking towards me. I go, oh my God, it's Jackie Robinson. He walks right by me. And I'm staring at him. I said, you idiot, go talk to him. And I walked up to Mr. Robinson. I said, I just, I have to say hello to you. And do you know, he sat and talked to me for an half an hour. And when it was over, he said, do you have something you want me to sign? And all I had on me was like a dollar bill. I said, here, that sits in a glass enclosed case in my office in my home. Of course. It's of a course. huge deal. Jackie Robinson to me, he didn't get into the big leagues until he was 26 years old. Can you imagine yeah. what he would have done had he started earlier? Because, you know, obviously he had a big distraction. Well, he played the 10 years that makes you eligible for the Hall of Fame. Uh, hit, I think, 311 lifetime, something like that. So he had Hall of Fame numbers. And then you, when you put it 
alongside his significance in the history of the game and really his societal significance at that time. Uh, he, didn't, he didn't need to accumulate greater numbers uh, to have the place in history that he still holds and will forever hold. Bob, let me ask you this. I've seen you, was it on CNN every once in a while? Every once in a while, yeah. Yeah, I've seen you on there. And uh, I mean, you've got to be versatile enough to do that because I mean, I don't know how where you are in politics and it doesn't really matter. But how do you make that adjustment from the booth in broadcasting to a news organization? Well, it's almost always when sports crosses over into news. For example, most recently, the PGA and Live Golf merger, if that's what it is, partnership merger, a lot still to be worked out. But there are obvious implications there with Saudi Arabia being behind Live Golf. Uh, those things come up from time to time. Uh, there are issues of race, issues of gender, uh, women's sports, whatever it might be, uh, transgender athletes, in some cases, previously male, now wanting to compete with women. These are all issues that are out there. Uh, and I feel comfortable enough, if you're reasonably well-informed, uh, comfortable enough to do that. I think it helps me that while I've done a lot of play-by-play -play in my career, I've also done a variety of other things, studio hosting, a lot of interviewing. The late night show that I did after David Letterman for six years on NBC in the late 80s into the mid 90s, 95% uh, of the guests were non-sports guests. Uh, and the preparation for that, you know, was kind of an education in and of itself. One of my few regrets is that I left that show much earlier than I should have. I couldn't mm. still have been doing it, but I could have done it for 10, 12 years rather than six. And I look back, back out on it with a lot of appreciation. And I guess a whole bunch of them are floating around now on YouTube. So I hear from people from time to time who say, hey, I just saw you with Paul McCartney. Was I with Paul McCartney last week? <laughs> I losing my mind. But I saw you with Dennis Hopper. Was it a seance? Dennis Hopper's been dead for a while, but it's YouTube. And before I let you go, two quick things. Yeah. Uh, Otani. I, I, don't, I don't know where you are with him, but I don't think I've ever seen anybody. Look, I thought Willie Mays was the best baseball player mm -hmm. for my money that I ever saw. He Me was too. a five, five tool player plus. But Otani, I mean, he is incredible. Yes. You find yourself doing a game that he's involved where you, he's overwhelming to watch. He moves the needle for everybody. You don't have to know a sacrifice bunt from a sacrifice fly to be fascinated by Shohei Otani. And the only comp that people keep reaching for it is Babe Ruth. But Babe, for all of his greatness, and he would have made the Hall of Fame as a pitcher if he'd stuck with that, one of the best of his era in the teens, uh, early part of the 20th century. But he never did simultaneously this level of pitching prowess and hitting prowess like Otani has done. If he keeps this up, he being Otani, for the next few years, he winds up, I don't see how you could dispute it, as one of the 10 greatest players, all things considered, no matter the era, in the history of the game, and the greatest two-way player ever. Does he get traded to the Yankees? You know, there's a case to be made for that. Uh, one rumor, uh, and we'll see what happens with you now on August 1st, the Yankees obviously need some sock in their lineup, even when Aaron Judge comes back, assuming he does, their lineup is not good enough, right. uh, even, even with Judge. So you get Otani, they probably have to take Rendon off the Angels' hands because that's not a good contract for the Angels. But Rendon, when he comes off the injured list, is a better bet at third base 
than Josh Donaldson at this point in his career. And the Yankees would have to unload a whole bunch of prospects to the Angels. And you'd have to then believe that Artie Moreno had determined that much as he would like to keep Otani, that he's just not in the running, that Shohei isn't going to stay with the Angels. And so they might as well just get the most they can possibly get for him under those circumstances. Before I let you go, you have a good sense of humor. If you had a chance to work on a sitcom, yeah, either currently on television or was one of the great sitcoms, which one would you pick to be involved to be in? You know, it's easy to say Seinfeld or now it's cousin curb your enthusiasm. And Larry David did say to me years and years ago, I got to write you into an episode and come to think of it. Seinfeld said the same thing, but now the show has come and gone. So uh, either one of those uh, would have been terrific, I think. Appreciate your time, Bob. Thanks a lot. You stay safe. Always a pleasure, Howie. Good to see you. Same here. Here's Bob Costas, one of the top broadcasters in the history of our business. Uh, he's done He's done it all. Yeah, it's simple to say, he's done it all. Uh, and having said that, uh, <laughs> I, uh, I've done it all. I've done a lot, and not at all. Bob has done it all. And having said that, um, I, uh, I, I like talking to Bob because we talk the same language. And having said that, Robert Quinlan Costas. I didn't even ask him about his middle name. <laughs> I, I, I couldn't afford a middle name, so I don't have one. That's it. Thanks again for being a part of Howard David Live, and you stay safe. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.